Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We are in the middle of a series through the letter of 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in chapter 10. Robert mentioned today that we're going to be speaking about idols, and, uh, and I want to kick us off by reading a great definition of what idolatry is from a pastor in New York City by the name of Tim Keller, who I respect very much. He pastors a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church, started it a few decades ago in the heart of New York City with just a few folks. Now there are thousands of people that are worshiping there, hearing the gospel. We sell some of his books in the Resource Center. Not this one, I don't think yet, but we should. But in particular, there's a book called The Reason for God, which is a tremendous book that will help encourage your faith, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or even if you are uh, not yet a Christian and you are wanting a good explanation of the Christian faith, I would recommend that you get that. But this is what Tim Keller says about idols. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meeting in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We worship many things, don't we? And they compete in our heart for the one true God that we come to gather today to make much of. And so if you have a Bible, and if you're using one of our chair Bibles, you can find that on page 674. If you're new here, you're maybe not yet a Christian, and you're just sort of investigating what Christianity is all about, we're very glad that you're here, and we'd encourage you to use one of the Bibles. We have a habit here to just make our Sunday mornings about Jesus. Look, we're really quite simple. I hope you've detected that. If you've been here for a long time, I hope that you've detected that we're very simple. There's nothing complicated about what we do. We gather to sing about Jesus, to make much of Jesus, and then we open the Bible that we believe the Spirit of Jesus wrote through human authors over many centuries, and we think about what Jesus is saying to us, and really that's it. And then after that, we want to respond to what the Lord has done in Jesus on the cross for us. This is very simple. It's not easy. But it's very simple. And we we believe that this should stir in us more than just sort of church in the South sort of attendance. But this should stir in us, if we are Christians, an adoration and a passion 
and an affection for what the Lord has done for us on the cross in Christ. And if you're not yet a Christian, I'm very glad that you're here. And today I pray that as we think about these things, that the Lord might do the greatest miracle of all, bigger than dropping bread from the sky or parting a sea or, or any other miracle or healing sick, but literally be bringing you from spiritual death to life. I pray that he would do that for you today. Well, here's my plan is to work through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, first 22 verses or so. We're going to make a few points. And then our plan, as Reynolds mentioned, is to receive communion together as a congregation, which we do together on the first Sunday of the month. We have it available every Sunday for you to receive if you're a Christian and believer in Jesus on your own. But on the first Sunday of the month, we take some time to, as a body of believers, gather together to do it a little bit more formally. We open this up to all people that are believers in Jesus. And so this is a family meal. If you're not yet a Christian and you realize that, we would encourage you to not feel the pressure to partake in this family meal. It's really something that Christians do. But if you are a believer in Jesus from another church or you're not yet a member of this church, you are welcome to come around the Lord's table with us at the end of this message time when we receive the bread and the blood, the, the juice which represents his blood, and think about what Christ has done for us together as a church family. Well, let me pray, and um, then let me read, and we'll, we'll make our way through this text. Oh Lord, thank you for the Bible, for its indescribable power. Lord, we come to you today, and we just reject all sense of entitlement. We confess that we are uh, most often very proud and arrogant people. We, uh, we come to you with a default, thinking and asking what you can do for us, what are we going to get out of this service or this sermon or this day, when in reality, the inverse should be our mindset. How can we serve the one true living God that made us and calls us to serve him in joy? So God, reorient our lives. Father, I pray for Christians in this room that you would give us a an unusual wisdom from your Holy Spirit to be able to detect and then reject the idols in our life that compete with you. And Father, as I mentioned earlier, if there are people in this room who do not yet know Jesus, whether they think they do but don't truly, or whether they are aware that they are not yet a follower of Christ and are here, I pray, God, that you would do what only you could do, that you would give them the illumination of the Holy Spirit so they would see Christ and they, they would see that he is altogether lovely. And that he alone is the mediator between them and a holy, righteous creator. And Lord, they must, I pray, that you'd give them this wisdom. That they must turn from their own sin. Turn from confidence in themselves and trust in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're right in the middle, or really ending up. Uh, this, this portion of 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with a specific issue. And I think chapters 8, 9, and 10 really go together in this letter of 1 Corinthians. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul is encouraging this stronger set of Christians who realize that there's really no such thing as idols, that idols are false, these false gods that the Greek Corinthian culture were worshiping, that there's really no such thing as those false gods. And so this meat that was produced in these butcher shops that were right next to these pagan temples in Corinth that was then being sacrificed to these false gods, 
these stronger Christians were saying, hey, look, there's no such thing as this idol anyway, and so why should we be hung up about this meat that is offered to this false god? There's no real false god anyway, so we're free to eat this meat. And Paul, in one sense, agrees with him, and he says, you're right. There is no such thing as a false god or idol. They're all false, and food can't really be offered to an idol. But for these weaker Christians who are maybe newer in the faith or who maybe in their previous life before they came to Jesus were particularly involved in pagan worship or sacrificing meat to these idols, he's saying to these stronger Christians, for the sake of these weaker Christians who might be drawn away by your sort of lack of concern for their hearts, you should not do this. And so he's really advocating in chapters 8, 9, and 10 a sort of laying aside of our rights or our freedom in Christ for the greater good of caring for another brother or sister's heart in the Lord and also for the potential bad witness that it might give to somebody who's not yet a believer. And so that's what he talks about in chapter 8. Then in chapter 9, he gives a personal example how he is laying down his own rights towards monetary compensation for his ministry because in this particular instance, he didn't want the Corinthians to confuse it with anything motivation-wise on his part. And now he gets back into this issue in chapter 10 of idolatry. and Well, actually, he gets back into this issue of this meat offered to idols. But now he's warning these stronger Christians. That's who he's speaking to primarily here. He's telling them that there's something even greater at risk here than them just sort of being self-centered and not caring about the weaker Christians. He's saying that if they just sort of, without self-examination and without thinking about what they are doing, that there's a potentiality that even they could be drawn away in their sort of lackluster self-centeredness as they just sort of, without thinking, engage in freedom in Christ. There's a possibility that they too might, in their unwise participation in eating this meat offered to idols, might themselves slip into a sort of idolatry. And so these, these verses here are, are aimed at these stronger Christians who need to be wise in the way that they're living and what they're doing and not be so self-centered because they may be in danger of slipping into a sort of self-absorbed idolatry. In other words, finding their satisfaction in something other than God. So let's read in verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's now taking them back to the Old Testament and he's recounting the journey of Moses and the people of Israel coming, uh, being freed through Moses' leadership from Egyptian captivity and slavery, passing through the Red Sea and then wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I'm not sure what slea is, but it's sea actually is what I meant to say. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. What he's referring to there is in the Old Testament where uh, literally God, when the people of Israel had passed, had come out of Egypt, were, were, had passed through the Red Sea miraculously, and then they're wandering around, God literally dropped food from heaven for them, manna from heaven, quails, just springing up. But God's actually giving them food, and he's also giving them water. And one particular occasion where they were uh, particularly thirsty and there was no water, he commands Moses to take a stick and, 
and strike a rock, and water actually came from this rock. And so God is not only, and this, by the way, is, is a picture of our salvation. God is not only completely and miraculously doing the work to save them, but then when they are actually in the wilderness, he's actually providing for them, and he's, he's encouraging these Corinthians to think back on God's provision for them for, in, for God's people during this time. And so it's all were baptized into Moses, verse 2, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, listen to this, this is important, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so Paul is saying it wasn't just some random thing that God did, but that it was foreshadowing Jesus that the whole Old Testament is about Christ and that this rock that literally Moses struck and water came from was a picture to point the people to Christ. And this food that, that literally fell from heaven was the bread. It was, it was God himself providing for his people. And then in verse 5 he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So let's stop there and just make a couple little points here. Is, is that the Old Testament... This is very important for you, especially if you're newer in the faith and you're just kind of thinking about how to read the Bible. I think probably a general default position for a lot of younger Christians is that the Old Testament and the New Testament seem sort of disconnected and unrelated. And we tend to focus on some of the more punishment or wrath passages of the Old Testament. And we have this incorrect notion that God is some sort of wrathful and mean and angry God in the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, you know, he hits a switch and he sort of becomes kind and, and sort of Santa Claus-like in the New Testament. Friends, that is not the biblical picture. You, you received a bad Sunday school lesson if that's the way that you think of the Old Testament in comparison to the New Testament. There's one God, and he is kind and merciful. His character doesn't change. And the Old Testament is given as a sort of picture of how God is working salvation, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the individual and pointing people to redemption that would come in Christ. And so here's what we do kind of in the American church is we, we make these sort of Sunday school lessons that teach us just mere morality out of the Old Testament. And so, so we take a wonderful story like Moses and his problems with speech and his insecurity and and we, we take Moses as he's being raised up by God to lead his people and we turn it into a sort of leadership lesson for American CEOs and say, see, Johnny, if you're leading a company, you can be, if you will just take courage like Moses, you can lead people too. No, that's not what the story of Moses is about. The story of Moses is Moses becomes a sort of figure of Christ, foreshadowing Christ. Of course, an imperfect picture of that. But Moses becomes a sort of type in the Old Testament of Christ who leads his people across the river, across the sea. And God miraculously, he miraculously saves his people through this leadership. We do the same thing with the story of David and Goliath, don't we? We, we moralize it and we say, so Johnny and Susie, you're like David. And if you will just run to the forefront of the battle and take courage, you can slay your giants in your life too. No, that's not the point of the story of David and Goliath. We are Israel in that story. We are hiding in the 
in the forest. We, we have run. We have our tails between our legs. Our teeth are chattering in fear over the giants of sin in our life. And David, of course, imperfectly, but is a Christ-like figure who comes and slays the giant for us. The Old Testament is not about felt board moral stories where you pin Elijah up to the felt board because his, you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't stick anymore because he's been used since 1950 on the felt board. That's not, it's not some moral story that we'll just take courage and muster enough faith and we too can do it, these great leaders. No, these stories in the Old Testament all point towards a Christ who saves. And he's, he's telling these Corinthians, look back on this record of the Old Testament. Don't, don't look to yourself for salvation, but look to a God who saves. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that himself in John chapter 5. I think it's verses 39 and 40. He's busting the chops of some Pharisees who were, uh, were trying to trip him up. And he was saying that you, you guys, listen, you, you guys are getting this all wrong. You search the scriptures. And of course, the New Testament had not been written at that point, right? So Jesus is speaking to them. When he says scriptures, that's just solely the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find eternal life, but they testify about me. And so the whole Old Testament is about the redemption that is coming in Christ. The Old Testament, think of it this way, the Old Testament is looking forward to salvation in Christ. The Gospels are about Jesus' life and work on the cross. And then the New Testament is pointing people back to that moment on the cross when God set things right by atoning for sin, saving his people from their sin. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And so, so here's point number one. I have three points that comes from these first few verses is that the Bible is about salvation in and the sufficiency, sufficiency of Jesus, not mere moral lessons. Don't read the Bible and don't teach your children the Bible by putting on th their backs some moral thing, standard that they have to live up to. Friends, we will fail all the time. The point of the law in the Old Testament is to show us our failure. In fact, in one sense, the Bible is given to us as a picture of God's holiness and our sinfulness to produce in us a futility so that we will turn from our own morality and turn, turn towards Christ in trust. And it's a subtle difference. It's a subtle difference how we approach the Bible. If we approach it as mere moral lessons on how to live better, it will frustrate us and it will always terminate on us. But if we see the Bible as this great, grand storyline of redemption where in Christ God is pointing to the cross or he's pointing back to the cross, where salvation comes in Christ alone, not in human merit, where there is salvation for all who call upon the name of Jesus, no matter how wicked or seemingly righteous they may be, that we are saved in no one but Christ. And that all of our sufficiency even after our salvation, as we wander through our own personal deserts, God provides for his people. He gives them manna. He gives them water. And it is all Christ. The Bible is about salvation in and the sufficiency of Jesus, not mere moral lessons. And just one little other thing. It's not a major point, but it's just striking to me in the first four verses. He uses the word all five times. He says all these people in the Old Testament, God's people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, they all were in this gig together. You know, they were all 
They all went through the sea. They all wandered in the desert. They all did this. They all did that. And then in verse 5 it says, But nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. My, my point is, is that just kind of being in the covenant community, being in the room, you know, kind of being a member of the church, getting a bulletin from somewhere, you know, just, just kind of thinking you're attached to a church doesn't necessarily mean you're where you need to be with God. And that's one of the great, that's one of the great challenges of our culture in the Bible Belt where we just sort of assume that because we're kind of hanging around and we have a sort of casual relationship to some degree with the church that we're okay. That may not necessarily be the case, friends. Don't be one of those Israelites who just sort of hung around but ultimately were overthrown when God, uh, when God really presses on you. And there's that day when you stand before Christ. Well, let's keep going in verse 6. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And here's our word in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Well, lots to think about there. Let's just kind of work our way through it quickly. Paul then encourages the Corinthians to not be idolatrous in their own life, to think about the idolatry of the people in the Old Testament, God's people, the nation of Israel, and then to examine their own lives and see their own idolatry. And he gives four examples here. In verse 7, he talks about... uh, the idolatry of, he refers back to the time in Exodus chapter 32 where the people of Israel were getting impatient with Moses' leadership. They were getting impatient with Moses who was up on the mountain hearing from God and they didn't want to wait that long and so they just made, some of you know this story, they made for themselves a, a golden calf. In fact, Moses' lieutenant, Aaron, he, he gets a little nervous, and he says, all right, the people are getting restless. Where's Moses? Kind of looking at his watch. What, you know, what are we going to do now? And he says, all right, bring all your gold. Let's melt it down. And they fashion a golden calf, and they start worshiping that golden calf. After God had brought them out of captivity in Egypt, and, and, and one of the quotes there about God when he comes and judges those peoples, he says that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up and play. They were just kind of happy-go-lucky not even caring about what God was wanting to say to them. And so Paul is warning the Corinthians to think back to that moment and not fashion for themselves some sort of ridiculous idol. And think about all the things that we sort of get impatient with God about. Think about how, how really easily unsatisfied we are. We just, I mean, for us to wait, even in, I think, the way to some degree... I hadn't intended on saying this, but the way, the way that we even do our church worship services, like if there's, a, if there's a moment, like a lull or some silence, man, you can just hear people getting restless. Oh, what are we going to do now? I mean, we are afraid of quiet and waiting. We, we, we are addicted to distraction, are we not? And, and, and that leads to idolatry because we're always rushing to what is next and we're, we're restless and then he goes on in verse 8. He says, don't indulge in sexual immorality, as some of it did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And it, 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 this is referring back to this, this instance in Numbers chapter 25 where the people of God were gathered to worship. And Noah's, Moses, 
Moses has them all assembled together in a sort of corporate worship gathering. And there's this one cat. He's like the son of a priest. He's like this snobby little rich kid. And he's messing around with some Midianite girl. And God had clearly told him not to intermarry with these foreigners because he didn't want the people of Israel to be polluted in their worship. And so he brings this girl. Like the, the church of Israel is gathered. And he brings this girl. He like traipses her across like the meeting and then goes into his tent and you guys can fill in the blanks. And there's this other cat who's righteous. And he rises up in anger over, over the immorality of this one guy. He takes a spear. He rushes into the tent. And he drives a spear right through both of them while they're doing what, what boys and girls do. Right? And so, and so then God gets mad at them for their sort of immorality and carelessness and coming to him. And their, their immorality. And he smokes 23,000 of them in a single day. Boom. God cares about how we live. God cares about, about how we approach him. God cares about these things. And, and to the Corinthians, Paul is saying, look, you guys are just sort of haphazardly living selfish lives, thinking that everything's about you, trampsing off to these pagan temples, saying that it's no big deal, that there's, you, you know, you're, you're, you're selfishly applying this truth and you're just kind of going through life, not thinking about your life and and God cares about these things, and, and he, he rattles their cage by referring back to this Old Testament situation where God, he eventually will take action. When does that day come? We, we don't know, but God, God cares about w- the way we live. And then he goes on in verse, verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And that's referring to Numbers 21, where, where these people, again, were, were presuming upon God's grace, and he sent these snakes to come and bite him and kill him, and then God's graciousness, he made this bronze serpent that he had Moses lift up, and whoever would look at it would be saved, but again, there's this presumption, there's this sort of innate, inherent, default selfishness, where in the Old Testament, and in the Corinthian culture, and in America today, and in this church even, we must battle against this sort of default position of basically God is there to save me and now I can go about doing basically what I want and serving myself and God's just supposed to be there in the end when I'm done with my life to sort of receive me into his graces presuming upon God's grace and then he he gets on them for their grumbling in verse 11, he says now, uh, in verse 10, he says, they grumbled, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D, meaning the angel of the Lord who came and actually struck them for their complaining to God about the size of the people in Canaan as they were on the edge of entering into this promised land in Numbers chapter 14. The point is, is that Paul is saying to these Corinthians, your self-absorption, your lack of satisfaction in God is putting you on the edge of you yourself becoming an idolater. No, you may not fall into worshiping Zeus or, or Aphrodite or something by eating the steak offered in the butcher shop next to that temple, but you, you are in danger of falling prey to an evil even more subtle and potentially dangerous idol, yourself, yourself, and your lack of satisfaction in, in God alone. 
Well, let's keep going. In verse 12, he says then, as a sort of a warning, a shot across the bow of all the people who believe that they're strong. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What a warning. In verse 13, it seems like he now aims in pastoral concern his heart towards the weak people who are probably, uh, probably feeling very insecure into what they should do, realizing that they're not strong like some of their brothers who seem proud in their ability to resist some idols and wondering whether or not God will be there with them, wondering if they're going to fall back into some particular sin or pagan worship. And, and after Paul levies the, the guns at, at, the weak, at the strong in verse 12, telling them not to be proud lest they fall, then with pastoral concern, he says in verse 13 to the weak, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Listen to these words. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So in the first part of those two verses, Paul is warning the arrogant to take heed. He's saying to them that you may have a blind spot. And that blind spots lead to ignorance. And ignorance leads to letting idols into our life. Friends, we are... Let's just confess that we are confident people. We are arrogant people. We have blind spots. We rationalize, man. We get a little bit of Jesus, and then we justify. We justify our actions with that, don't we? And he's encouraging the Corinthians to take heed. But then he says to the weak, and by the way, we are simultaneously both weak and strong. In one situation, you can be very, very strong, and in another situation, you can be very, very weak. And you need to realize that duplicity that exists in every human soul, and even in your own. In fact, the other day, Reynolds and I were, were discussing a brother who's kind of caught in, in, in a lack of faithfulness and sin in one particular area of their life. And we weren't, we weren't bashing this brother. We were talking pastorally how we might encourage this person and how we as elders might serve this particular person. And as we were thinking about this, really just kind of being brokenhearted, saying, how can we help this brother? Then we both just sort of thought, you know, remember that scripture in Psalm where it says that if the Lord were to count our transgressions, who could stand? We tend to focus on our strengths. Where we are strong, we tend to see it as a weakness in other people. And we tend to really just minimize our weaknesses, don't we? Our weaknesses become blind spots to us, and so we judge other people according to our strengths, and we cry for grace whenever our weaknesses are revealed, don't we? And Paul is saying to the strong and the weak, who is both of us at at all times in our life, he's saying to the strong, don't be proud in this area of this life, but for you, tender soul, where you are being defeated again and again by sin, remember this, that no temptation has come upon you that is not common to you. So one of the things, listen to me now clearly, that one of the things that the devil wants to do to you, young man, or you, young lady, is put you off in a corner and isolate you and make you believe this lie that you are the only person going through this, that you're the only young lady in your high school class that has to deal with this particular set of issues and nobody understands you, or that you're the only 22-year-old guy that has to go through this sort of passion and rage with lust. Or that you're the only young lady in your particular circle of friends who isn't married yet or doesn't have any suitors on the horizon that can, you know, tie their shoes and comb their hair. There's no potential options for you. No, that's a lie. And what it does is it boxes you into a corner 
And you think nobody understands you. Nobody understands what I'm going through. And then subconsciously you begin to believe this lie that even God has maybe forgotten you and doesn't understand you. And what Paul is saying to that weak soul, which is all of us at times, no, 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 brother or sister, there's nothing that you are going through that is not common to man. Don't isolate yourself. Don't turn inward and have a pity party on yourself. In fact, Jesus himself knows what you are going through. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews, that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. It says in Hebrews 2.17 that he had to become like his brothers in every way so that he could help them in their time of need. Do not buy the lie that your circumstance or your situation or your weakness is the first case like that in the history of mankind. That's a lie. And Paul writes to those people, he writes to us, and he says with tender care that God is faithful in that situation. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will not let you think about what's going on here. Think about God's sovereign power even over our sin. And he says that the temptation with it, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to. To endure it. How does God provide ways of escape? He gives us, I think, well, we could spend a whole Sunday. We could spend a month on just thinking about the means of grace that God has given us to overcome sin and to live for Christ. But let me just give you four. I don't have them listed. So if you're a note taker, you gotta be you gotta be ready. Get your pen ready, all right? And if you're not a note taker, then this will be on the internet. You can get it later. We'll have our notes up there. But I think there are four means of grace that I just meditated on that God gives us as Christians. The first means of grace is just that the grace that comes through Christ's work on the cross. If you're a Christian, Christ has saved you. He has reconciled you. He has transferred you, as Reynolds wrote, uh, read earlier, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. You are now his. And with that becomes, comes the power, the imputed righteousness of Christ to fight sin. Christ lives in you. His righteousness is given to you. Your Christ's grace, what Jesus did on the cross, was not just secure your eternal destiny. It was to give you his character now. Grace is more than just forgiving. It's empowering. That's why Titus says, Titus chapter 2, verses 10, 11, 12, somewhere around in there, it says that the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to his people, teaching them to say no to ungodliness. So grace doesn't just forgive, it empowers Realize that on the cross, something happened there more than just your eternity. Something happened there. It was Christ transferring his righteousness to you. You have Christ's nature in you. That's number one. Number two, he gives us his word. He gives us his scripture. Friends, I really realize that the Bible is huge. It's massive. It's difficult to absorb when you first become a Christian. And some of you may have been Christians for 20 or 30 years and you instinctively know that you don't know your Bible very, very well. And so that causes guilt in you, which causes you to continue that cycle of not knowing your word. But in this word, there is power to fight sin. David says in Psalm 119 that his word he has given us that we might, we might, we might guard our hearts against sin. 
And so God has given us his word. That's why we need community. That's why you need to be with other brothers and sisters reading this word, hearing this word spoken to you. That's why, that's why it's so important to gather if you're a Christian because you hear the word preached. And by the way, that's why we don't talk about silly stuff like puppy dogs and dandelions and three steps to having a better Tuesday and how to make you happy in a February. And that's why we don't talk about marriage sermons and finances and how to do your anger and all this kind of stuff. Those are silly things aimed at behavior modification. Certainly the Bible touches on those things, but you need to hear the cross. The only way you can have a good marriage is if you know what Jesus has done for you. The only way you can be wise in your finances is if you know that Jesus has ransomed you for something bigger than having a good 401k. The only way you can manage your anger is by taking your sin to the cross and receiving Jesus's righteousness and he's given us those truths in the word and so we think about his word are, are you in his word Christian are you so he's given I'm getting carried away here and you you guys are looking at me like I'm from Saturn but that's all right so point number one of the four means of grace there is he gives us grace from his work on the cross he gives us his word he gives us his Holy Spirit that's the third thing. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ actually lives in you. He convicts you of sin. He guides you into all truth, Jesus says in John. The power of God lives in you, Christian. He gifts you. He gives you the mind of Christ. He, he gives you the ability to, over the course of time, as you submit yourself to authority and community, he gives you the ability to understand his word and to, to just know, just to think. He he changes the way you see things, doesn't he? He gives you his Holy Spirit, and then fourthly, he gives, us, he gives us community, man. He gives us each other. He gives us one another to, to help each other, see our blind spots, to speak life into each other, to rebuke one another, to encourage one another. Friends, by the way, incidentally, that's why we make such a big point of church membership here. You, you need a church family that you do life with. No church is perfect. This church has got some issues, man. This church is imperfect. This church has got issues. Every other church has issues because it's, every church is made up of people that have issues. And we, we justify, we come up with all these reasons why we don't really give ourselves to a community. Maybe we've been hurt in the past. And now the loudest thing about us is, oh, you don't know what happened to me back in 1998. My church split. And now I can't give my heart to the body of Christ. Is that your testimony? Is that the thing that you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, do you give your life to my body? Do you serve people? Do you make it about something bigger than your own little Bible study that you ran off to and got your little three or four points and then went back and did your thing? Or did you give your, your life to the body of Christ? And is your testimony before God when you stand before him that day and say, you don't know what happened. You don't know what happened, Jesus. It was hard. The elders didn't serve me and my family, or the pastor did this, or he did that. Okay, we're jacked up. Every church is jacked up. This church is jacked up. I'm jacked up. I'm going to fail you. And so is the loudest thing about you the fact that you've had a bad church experience in the past? That's becoming an idol. Your own injury from your past is, the, is an idol. It's the thing that you hold most dearly to you. You can't give it up. Maybe your idol, maybe the thing that keeps you from joining a church is just your own sense of entitlement and pleasure. You just want to tramps off and do your thing. Golf, uh, vacation, uh, do this, well, I'm, I'm busy. You know, I'm, we, just, we prioritize everything but the people of God and his mission, don't we? 
you put your, your feet underneath the chair, they won't get stepped on as much. That's what I understand. So you get, all right. You guys are uncomfortable, and I love it. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> so those are the four things. Grace, His Word, His Holy Spirit, and the people of God. Are you opening your heart to the people of God? Come on, do it, man. We're awkward. We're awkward. And you know, how do you do that? Come a little early. Hang around. Let us know your name. Listen, we want to we know you, man. You need to be known. You need to be in this church. You need to... You need to be part of a small group. You need to be in a life point group. You need to prioritize that. We need more life point group leaders. If you're a member of this church and you are selfishly prioritizing and ordering your life about, around something other than the mission of God that God has given you through your local church, I would plead with you to look up and see the need that exists even in our body and to maybe consider being trained to be a life point group, group leader because we need more. We can't do life together on a Sunday morning. We must gather in smaller groups. Let's keep going. Verse 14. All right, let, me, let me stop there. I got a point here. I just got so fired up about that, I've, I've lost my point. Point number one that I made was that the Bible is about salvation in and sufficiency of Jesus, not mere moral lessons. And point number two that I get from those verses we just read, a self-centered confidence makes us blind to our idols. Self-centered confidence makes us blind to our idols. Brother, sister, have you considered what your idols are? I, I know I have had so many idols. I mean, silly ones. You know, when you're a little kid playing high school football, you want to be able to bench press, you know, a certain amount of weight. And then they get more wicked and more deceptive. For all you army guys out there, I can remember idolizing the ranger tab. I can remember staking all of my identity in a stupid little yellow piece of cloth. I, I, I still battle the idol of ministry success. You know, you go to these silly little meetings where ministers gather and their little goofy little jeans and their little soul patches and their little wire rim glasses trying to act hip and cool like they really got their current on culture. I mean, who cares? And they all ask each other, well, how's it going, brother? And really what they're saying is, how many people are coming to your church? justification by attendance is what it's called. It's deadly. And it lurks in the heart of every preacher. And I have to reject that all the time. I have to reject the idol of people that I don't see for a while that have been part of this church and I wonder where they really are. I wonder if they're really here. Or maybe if they're going somewhere else. And I have to constantly fight that idol. Friend, do you know your idols? Do you, have you considered it? We are self-absorbed, efficient people. Man, if we don't get it, we, can, we move on to the next thing. And it produces in us this sort of blind, self-centered confidence that makes it very difficult for us to see our own idols. Have you taken just a moment to consider what your idols might be? And Paul is urging the Corinthians and he's urging us to not be proud lest we fall. And if we are falling, to trust God because he's faithful. Self-centered confidence makes us blind to our idols. Then we finish with this. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, oh, with such tender care, flee from idolatry, he says. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, and now he's going to transition into 
this picture of communion that Christians take, comparing it to eating this idol meat. He says this cup of blessing, meaning when we gather together for communion, like we're going to do today, and we bless this cup, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What he's saying there is that, look, we're, we're doing something more than just Christian tradition here. We're coming together to remember what Christ has done on the cross. That if you're a Christian, you are identifying with something. You are saying that you are guilty before God. Friends, listen to this. This is the gospel. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are saying that you in your sin have turned against God. You have rebelled against Him. All of us, every one of us, the Bible says, have done that. And you are confessing that your only hope Your only hope for right standing is that God sent His Son Jesus to die as a sacrifice, as a mediator, as a substitute to bear the wrath and the punishment for our sin that should have been ours. And He took our punishment. And He absorbed God's wrath and He he satisfied it. And then He turned God's wrath into God's favor and He rose again over death and sin and all of its consequences, and now commands all of us to repent and believe and trust in Him for our right standing with the Creator of the universe. And Paul is saying to these Corinthian Christians, he's saying, do you realize that's what we're doing here? We're we're identifying ourselves with what Jesus has done on the cross. That is the only thing that matters about any of you, if you're a Christian. That it's not just part of our life. It is our life. He's saying, do you realize this, that we're, we are fellowshipping. We are becoming one with Christ and His body. On, And what He's done is we remember His work on the cross. Verse 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So what he's saying is, think about these Old Testament sacrifices. That, that when they took these sacrifices to the altar, these animals. They they were participating in this. This was signifying their go-between between them and God before Jesus came. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so what he's saying is here is he's saying, listen, Am I saying that you guys are sacrificing this meat to idols? No. But what he's saying is is that these pagans really are doing that, even though these idols are false. And you, in your sort of haphazard self-confidence and arrogance, are in danger of just blending into this culture and looking more like Corinth than Christ. We as Americans are, Christians are more in danger of looking like our culture than Jesus. And so what he's saying is here, I don't want you to participate with that. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have your feet in both camps. You can't live with this world, do what you want to do, and then have it all wash away on a Sunday by just showing up at church and receiving communion. He's saying you must, you must choose who you're, who you're participating with, where your allegiance is. Verse 22, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
Paul's pastoral point to the strong is that their unwise participation in pagan culture was getting dangerously close to making their hearts vulnerable to a self-centered idolatry. This was bad for the weaker Christians who were confused by their witness. It was a bad witness to unbelievers. And he's saying your own heart can easily be drawn away. Which brings me to point number three. We should flee from our idols, not attempt to manage them. We should flee from our idols, not attempt to manage them. Friends, I ask you again, three questions here. Are you aware of your idols? Do you even know what they are? Do you even know what they are? I was just thinking about this just a second ago. You may be in here right now, and you may realize that you have not yet professed belief in Jesus. And God may have given you, in his kindness, a very good and intelligent mind. Can I just gently say to you that you may maybe even making an idol out of your own intelligence. And the very God who you are exercising your intelligence to deny or doubt is the one who gave you that ability. Friend, can I just submit to you that you, you very likely may be walking in just tremendous arrogance right now. Really? In your 40 years, have you figured it out? In your 40 years... I'm not saying that God can't take our doubts, and I'm not saying that we can't have a good discussion about the Scriptures and the truth of the Scriptures and who God is. But can I encourage you, doubter, to maybe make the first step of your doubts a posture of humility rather than arrogant trust in your own limited wisdom? Are you aware of your idol? Are you aware of your idols too? Are you serving them or fleeing from them? You're just giving in to them. You're just giving in to them. You're just, you're just a girl who's concerned about her body image, and so you just give in to it. You just divorce that concept from your identity in Christ, and you, that just dominates you. Is that, you're just giving in to it? You're a corporate guy, you're 30-something years old, got a couple kids, and you are just divorcing the pursuit of your career ascent from your participation with Christ. You're just separating the two. And you're just giving in. You're just giving in. You're just letting the flow of this world just dominate the way you are, what you do. Are you doing that? And then question number three is, how do we flee from these idols? I think the answer is very simple. The way we flee from these idols is the same way we come to Christ for the first time. We turn from them. We repent of our idols. And we look once again to Jesus, and we see that he is altogether lovely, and he is altogether sufficient. And he is altogether more satisfying than these idols that we put our trust in. We're going to do that in just a moment as we receive communion. Christian, have you done that today? Have you turned from idols? Have you identified them? And right now, is God in his kindness speaking to you by his Holy Spirit, encouraging you to identify and turn from your idols. Confess that to the Lord. Confess it to a brother or sister. And turn once again afresh to Jesus and what he has done. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this word, for this truth. Lord, I stand in, I stand in solidarity with my fellow idolaters here today and confess along with them 
that our hearts are so easily torn away. Our hearts so easily find satisfaction in other things. We make really our own sense of self our functional savior in God and we see you as merely means to help us in that pursuit. Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are believers in Jesus here today, God, would you give us wisdom? Would you cut through our self-absorption and our blindness? And would you give us spiritual eyes, as Paul prays for the Ephesians, that we might know and see Christ, that we might turn from our idols, that we might turn from our trust in them and turn afresh in repentance towards Jesus and his altogether lovely, all-sufficient goodness. Lord, would you do that for my brothers and sisters here this morning and myself? Lord, for the person, the brother or sister in this room who's not yet a believer in Jesus, Lord, would you soften their heart? Would you, would you make, even in the midst of their doubt and their skepticism, Lord, would you make Jesus' goodness irresistible to them? Lord, I'm not asking you to win an intellectual battle with them because, God, I mean, if you, I mean, who has been your counselor, God? Who, who can match wits with you? Lord, you condescend to us and you and your grace even make us able to think. And then in our sin, we even exercise the gift of reason against you. So God, would you turn, would you gently a breeze with your Holy Spirit. Turn that person so that they might just see you. And God, would you just make Jesus altogether more lovely than their doubts. God, would you make him irresistible so that they can't help but trust in you and turn towards you. Forsake confidence in self. God, would you, would you do that right now? And friend, if that is you, what you need to do is you need to turn from trusting in your own intelligence and you need to turn towards Christ. Listen, it doesn't mean that you have to have every T crossed and every I dotted and everything figured out. Who does have everything figured out? None of us. But friend, right now you just turn, look to Jesus. See the risen Savior. See the good and gracious King. See the one who loved you and laid down his life for you and now in kindness and clarity is calling you to turn from trusting in yourself, turn from trusting in your righteousness or your morality. He's calling you now with every bit of love to come and trust in Him. Friend, would you do that right now? Would you come to Jesus? Would you lay down your selfish insistence that you have all the answers? And would you come to Jesus? If there's some sin or some injury or some terrible thing in your past, that up to this point that has prevented you from coming to Jesus, would you, would you stop idolizing that thing and would you come to Christ even now? Would you come to the one that can only heal you, the only one that can give you the very thing that you thirst for? Come to Christ right now, friend. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I 
Lord, would you do these things? And as we remember your work on the cross, would you renew our satisfaction in Jesus? And I pray it in your great name. Amen.